Welcome to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast, where we dive into your inner world to explore all of the psychological, emotional, energetic, and spiritual components that may be influencing your struggle with food and eating. I'm your host, Sarah Emily Spears, a trained psychotherapist and energy worker who recovered from my own eating disorder. And now I help women just like you do the inner work to address the real issues keeping you stuck in your problematic eating patterns. Because I assure you, your problem with food is about way more than food. So join me and guest experts as we discuss the psychology of eating and healing and empower you with tangible steps you can take today to begin to improve your relationship with food and yourself from a place of true nourishment and care. Today's guest is Katya Lovejoy, a clinical hypnotherapist, trauma coach, and meditation teacher who supports highly sensitive people to reclaim a sense of wholeness and empowerment after trauma. Katya holds a degree in neuroscience and social work, as well as esoteric trainings from lineages around the world. She approaches trauma healing from an individual, ancestral, and collective lens, and utilizes subconscious, somatic, and spiritual approaches to finding release and resolution. Katya is committed to the liberation and empowerment of all people and is on a mission to help end the transmission of intergenerational trauma in families and communities by sharing the most effective modalities for sustainable transformation. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here and have yeah, this me conversation. Too. Me too. It's you're the first person that I wanted to have on the show because for me, the topic of trauma is so important for people to understand and like really have accurate knowledge about, especially because we live in the digital age where I feel like right now trauma healing and trauma work is sort of a fad and trend, but there's a lot of misinformation circling on Instagram and social media. And it's so important for people to just really understand like what trauma actually is and be able to learn from somebody who's trained and has the clinical background and professional knowledge. And so that's why I really wanted to be able to start this show off with what the heck is trauma sort of an introduction so people can understand, especially for these listeners, because if they are struggling with disordered eating, I guarantee that underneath that we have some unprocessed trauma. So thank you for being here and sharing your wisdom with us. I'm so excited. And you're right. I just, I just made a TikTok video the other day and then I like deleted it because I'm still learning TikTok, but you know, I was trying to express that the double-edged sword of social media and the mental health education that we're getting through these platforms, which on the one hand is like so amazing because we can give this information out to a lot more people to whom maybe, you know, mental health education or particular healing practices were not available or accessible before. So in that way, it's really cool. And there's also so much benefit to speaking about trauma. I know in previous generations, there was such shame about it. And it was such a taboo subject. I mean, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a household where we said, don't, uh, I learned, don't air your dirty laundry, right? We don't talk about these kinds of things. And so on the one hand, that's really amazing. On the other hand, like on a platform like TikTok, for instance, you have 
the maximum amount of video time is three minutes. So how are you going to transmit the information that's needed to help somebody heal their trauma in three minutes? It's not even possible. So I think people can get really caught up on these apps and you know, devour this information. And we're not gonna heal through looking at memes or reels, even though they're informative and often hilarious. I love them. And <laughs> that's not the end of the process. Totally. Yeah. I, I love this point that it is helpful to build awareness and we need awareness because if we don't even realize that there's things that are affecting us that we can heal, then we're never going to take action to begin to do that healing work. And you know, it's limited and can only take us so far. And after awareness, we then need to be able to find the right people, the right practitioners, the right community that can support us in effectively processing and healing and repairing the trauma. Totally. And so, so can many you people start have trauma? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I know we all just, if you're listening and like, we all have trauma, so <laughs> I can guarantee we all check that box in some capacity. And so can you explain like trauma 101 like how would you define trauma or what is trauma so that we can all be on the same page with what we're talking about yeah there's different definitions of trauma that i i really resonate with i'll share all of them um but one distinction that i recently heard somebody articulate that i think is really important is that not every difficult or painful experience is trauma I can go through something that's really hard that I might have a lot of emotions about that might be painful, but if I can manage it, if I can um, you know, work through it, then it's not trauma. Trauma is something that overwhelms our ability to manage a situation, right? to tolerate a situation. So overwhelm is a huge component of trauma. And one of the definitions I like is Trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, without consent. Now, sometimes it's too little, right? And that's often the case with uh, like emotional trauma and neglect during childhood. But that too, that word too, right? It's like too much. It's overwhelming our system and that can feel like a threat. And so another way I like to look at trauma is that it's anything that puts us into protection mode. And often that's gonna look like uh, contraction, right? Um, nervous system dysregulation. Uh, yeah, and, and two people can experience the same event and one person's system is going to register it as a trauma and another person will not. And why is that? It's not because the person who experiences or perhaps develops PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder from an event, it's not that they're like morally inferior or a bad person or something, or not good enough or not strong enough. It's that uh, the person that didn't or the person that was able to manage through it had more resources. And so that could look like a lower baseline of stress to begin with that can look like, um, you know, having a community, a support system to help them move through something. And that actually brings me to like one of my favorite definitions of trauma that I just learned from Gabor Mate. When I heard this, it was like an arrow to my heart. I like, I was like, 
Oh my God, yes. So he says, the pain of the child is not the trauma. It's being left alone with the pain that is the trauma. Whoa. <laughs> like I was, yes, I was just never, saying it again. Yeah, I've never heard it put quite like that. Yeah. And I love these varying definitions because it really helps to give a full, a full picture of what trauma is and what it isn't. And the the too much, too soon, too fast really makes sense it, in helping us understand that it's not because there's anything wrong with us. It's because literally our nervous system or our brains, like we're not able to, to process or handle what we were experiencing without going into dysregulation or activating this fight, flight, freeze response. And then with this last piece that you've just added, and if we're going through that and there's no one there to support us, there's no one there to help regulate us or to make us feel safe, then it's that aloneness that can really sort of contribute to this becoming trauma for some and not for others. Mm -hmm. And that's especially the case with like childhood neglect or, you know, childhood emotional abuse even, right? If there was a, if there wasn't a parent or caregiver there who could really like acknowledge a child's experience or, um, you know, even maybe they weren't even there or maybe they, the child will get in trouble for having whatever emotion they were having, whether it was anger or grief or frustration or whatever, like that disconnection that has to happen then, like that's another definition of trauma is like anything that disconnects us from ourselves, from other people, from our spiritual connection, from like life, from our aliveness you know, and when you don't get your needs met, you have kind of no choice but to shut those needs down. Yes. And for so many of us, and this was me, I never identified what you've just described, which is maybe not fully having my needs met or fully being able to have a caretaker or adult who could help me process my emotions fully. No blame of theirs. I mean, you know, a parent could be at work not doing anything to you, but you're just alone going through whatever is emerging for you. And so, you know, I never really conceptualized that as trauma. And so many women I work with, and this was me, when we have our initial conversation and I inquire about trauma, it's so common for me to hear, no, I had a great childhood. I had loving parents, you know, no, no big T traumas. There was no memory of abuse or neglect or sexual misconduct. And so they've never even considered that they still have some form or degree of trauma that is affecting them. And what I found through my own healing journey and pretty much 99.9% .9 of the humans that I've worked with is that if you are using food to self-soothe, to feed your feelings instead of feel your feelings, and you struggle with even more severe tendencies like binging or bulimia, that without a doubt, that behavior has developed as a way to try and soothe and deal with traumas that have not been processed. And much of this is outside of our conscious awareness. And even Absolutely. on my group call yesterday, this came out so perfectly because some of the women were saying, 
you know, they were invalidating their experience. So many people have it so much harder than me. So many people have lived through so many more traumatic and difficult things. Like I haven't had anything bad happen to me. And then they feel like something's wrong with them because they had a good childhood that they're still struggling so much. So what would you say to those women who say, I had a great childhood. I didn't have these mega traumas that other people had. And yet I seem to be struggling. Mm. Well, I, I want to say right now that I hear the same thing with my clients and we cannot compare traumas. It's just, it's apples and oranges. You, you can't do it. It doesn't, first of all, it's not accurate. And second of all, it's not helpful, right? Because again, two people can experience the same thing and one's going to register it as trauma and the other one's not, and it's the same event. So how can we even compare other events? It's about, you know, what's in our experience and this tendency to deny you know, that anything bad happened and I had a great childhood and my parents were amazing. That in itself might be a trauma response because the, the response was to shut off uh, any pain, right? Any acknowledgement of pain to disconnect even from the awareness of it, right? Like you said, so much of it isn't even conscious. And when it comes to eating disorders, it's like, it's so connected to needs, and the shame around having needs, like anorexia is like turning off the appetite. It's like turning off any, the need for nourishment. Why might we decide that we have to do that? Maybe if nourishment wasn't available and that pain was so intense, we just said, well, let me just shut this down. Yeah. And that could be, from my experience, it can be physical nourishment, but even Absolutely. more so it's the emotional nourishment. Exactly. And that's I what think I they see go with, hand in hand. Yeah. And that's what I see with women who binge or binge and purge. There's this craving, right? There's this deep need and longing to have a need met that wasn't met that they've often disconnected from the need, like the need of connection. And there's been this broken connection where this need to feel safe or to receive love and comfort and warmth. And if they didn't have that need, and they weren't able to experience co-regulation with an adult who could support them in whatever they were experiencing, they turned to really adaptive ways to try and self-regulate, to try and feel safe, to try and bring their nervous system back into a state of regulation. And for many kids and for people who are struggling with binge eating or bulimia, they're finding food as the source of, I'm connecting to food, I'm feeling comfort from food, food is now love, I associate food with love, and this becomes the, the thing I attach to and rely on. When trauma is activated, consciously or unconsciously, and my nervous system goes into dysregulation, it's immediately sending me the signal, go eat, because this is how you can help yourself. Because mm -hmm. this is how it worked in the past. And right. it you know, it was reliable. And with bulimia, it's like this huge appetite, this, this instinct to get these needs met. Yes. We're talking about physical nourishment, but really we're talking about emotional nourishment. And so then, you know, you get that. And then there's this intense shame and punishment for having those needs in the first place and for figuring out a way to have met them. Right. And it's like, well, where did you learn that? And the shame is just so much a part of trauma. And I think it's so important for us to remember that all of these things that maybe we're looking at in adulthood as unhelpful coping mechanisms, like emotional eating or like more extreme 
anorexia and binging and purging, these are adaptive, right? And, and even in other situations, you know, self-sabotage or um, yeah, isolation, right? These are adaptive. They're meeting a certain need. And only when we can discover what that need is, can we then find healthier ways of meeting that need and like less destructive ways. Right. I, I say to my clients, there's a function for the behavior. There's a reason. It's not because you just don't have willpower. It's not because you're broken or there's something wrong with you. There's like a very good reason why your brain has developed this pattern or behavior or tendency as a way to actually try and keep you safe or keep you from hurt and rejection or keep you from more pain. Totally. And I think that the belief that there's something wrong with me and that I'm broken, that that's even a result of trauma, especially when, well, I guess it could be with like acute trauma, like a particular instance and maybe you didn't fight back or you couldn't perform the way that you wanted to do. And, and that might create a belief that um, you're not good enough or something like that. But I find, especially with like interpersonal trauma, relational trauma, attachment trauma during childhood and, and in family dynamics, that that can really lead to those feelings. And I didn't even know I had like complex trauma until I was 30. I had those feelings of unworthiness, of shame, of there's something wrong with me, you know, this like emptiness. And I was in regular therapy for many years, like 10 years, and it was helpful. You know, there were some insights, but then when I went to hypnotherapy school and, you know, was we were like learning and doing sessions with each other. And my teacher said to me, I think after a few months that I had complex PTSD from having a mother with a personality disorder and an addiction. And I was like, what? But it all clicked into place. It was one of those arrows hitting the heart moments where it's like, oh my God, like this explains so much. Can you and explain think, what you mean by complex trauma? Yeah. Compared to maybe plain yeah. old trauma. <laughs> well, there's different kinds of trauma. There's like, I think I mentioned acute trauma, which is like a particular event, maybe a car accident or a natural disaster or like an invasion or like a one-time sexual assault. And then complex trauma is multiple events and varied, often varied events of trauma over a period of time that um, kind of compound in the nervous system. So again, that makes it more difficult to bounce back that lowers your resources. So then, you know, the next, if there's another trauma that's going to compound that impact on the system and you know developmental trauma which is trauma that happens over the course of a person's development from birth to adulthood is a form of complex trauma and it's going to make a particular imprint on us where you know there's a difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder they both have physical symptoms like um, hypervigilance, uh, insomnia, irritability, mood swings, um, even trust issues. 
high blood pressure, high heart rate, all that kind of stuff. But then with the complex trauma, that also impacts your personality. So in many cases, you know, many people think that personality disorders like borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder are rooted in actually attachment trauma. And the thing about attachment trauma, or at least in my particular situation, like recognizing what happened that my mom was so dysregulated that my nervous system just matched hers. So it's like, I never had a regulated nervous system. And so that really lowered my uh, capacity to deal with things because I didn't have a baseline resource of grounding and of like connection. Like your nervous system never had this like imprint of regulated state and yeah, safety. regulated. Yeah. And security. Yeah. But I grew exactly. But I grew up in like a nice town with like a big house and I had all my physical needs met, at least, you know, I had enough food and shelter and, you know, I got to go to summer camp and stuff like that. So I it never occurred to me. It's like, of course it's safe. Right. But my nervousness from the inside, there was not safety. Yeah. And that's an important thing for listeners to understand that trauma isn't about what your mind understands. You know, we, especially looking back at our childhood may know cognitively, I had loving parents, or we may know when we're in an apartment, like I know I'm safe, but it's not about what our mind knows. It's about how the body is responding to the environment and the nervous systems activation or deactivation or stability because that's really what is our indication as to whether or not we're going into sort of a, a trauma response or if we're being triggered, right? It, it's, it goes, it bypasses the mind and it's something that's happening in our, in our body. Mm -hmm. I always say that trauma doesn't live in the conscious mind. It lives in the subconscious and the nervous system and in the energy body. So if we're just using our cognitive conscious mind to try to heal these issues it's like just trying to deal with the tip of the iceberg right they say that 95 percent of our experience is influenced by the subconscious and the unconscious only five percent is like organized through the conscious mind so the roots of our pain like you were talking about with eating disorders the the behavior of the eating or not eating is the tip of the iceberg. That's the symptom. It's not the cause. Yes. Right. But if we're just focusing on that surface level, I think we can kind of sometimes go around in circles. You know, if we're just talking about our, our stuff, we actually have to, well, talking about our feelings and thinking about our feelings is not the same as feeling our feelings. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And that's why I'm so passionate about this work because this was me and it's so many women who come to me it's they're struggling with food but they're viewing food as the problem or their willpower as a problem and the so only solutions they're trying are to go on a diet or try and control food and if that's the only solution you're trying you are missing the real issue that's at the root that is driving the behavior yeah. and for me that's why starting this podcast and spreading this knowledge is so important because so many people don't know what they don't know and they don't realize until someone starts to share with them, Hey, like, let's look 
not just at the symptom, but let's start to dig deeper and understand the layers and the complexity of your human experience that is all influencing some of these patterns and these behaviors. In this case, specifically, you know, the disordered eating tendencies, but it can show up in so many different ways for different people. So you've spoken about, you know, some of the symptoms, but I'd love to also just sort of offer for people who maybe aren't sure, you know, this is really new for them to sit with. They're listening, wondering, well, I did have a great childhood, but I am also struggling with food and eating. And so you've mentioned shame as a possible indicator of maybe having a history of trauma. Some of those beliefs, like there's something wrong with me, things like insomnia, what would you say is sort of a, an overview of the spectrum of some of the symptoms that could point to trauma that somebody could potentially be experiencing? I think that word spectrum is key that not everybody's going to have all of these symptoms. Um, on the one hand, it's so important to have feedback right from somebody like you or somebody like me, where it's like, all right, girl, you got trauma, (laughs) you know, like, let's call it what it is. (laughs) But at the same time, there's also kind of a self, um, a self inquiry where it's like, we have to decide, we have to figure that out. Like, does this resonate for me that when I hear these different symptoms, um, like tracking that for yourself, I think so often we do look outside for the answer. And I always like to tell my clients to trust their experience. So as I name some of these different symptoms or experiences, I invite the listeners to really just, if it's possible to feel into their bodies and notice, is there a ping somewhere or is there a tightening somewhere, right? Is your body responding to any of these words? Like maybe there's an exploration to be had there. So So you guys can keep what really sticks or resonates and not give too much energy to something if it doesn't feel true for you. Exactly. And not have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What is up with that phrase, by the way, as I said that I'm like, wow, that's traumatic. (laughs) Speaking of trauma, let's not throw babies. (laughs) Tossing children out is traumatic. (laughs) So yeah. So these feelings of unworthiness, um, having uh i think we talked about like a high startle response like anxiety in general can be a sign of unprocessed trauma depression long-term depression i mean yes there is um you know argument that there's a chemical imbalance going on and i totally support people you know taking medication when that's appropriate for them and I think it's also important to look at, is this a long-term nervous system dysregulation state? Sometimes long-term freeze response can look like depression, right? Where you're feeling really numb or you're feeling really empty or there's this like chronic fatigue. Um, And then, or or trouble focusing even, that, that could be a symptom of trauma. And then sometimes like panic attacks or longstanding anxiety could be a sign of a long-term fight flight response, right? And that might look like irritability, like anger outbursts. Also, like when we're really critical of other people or judgy, that could be something, right? Often that's coming from that we do that with ourselves. And where did we learn that? We learned that for a reason. Um, 
One thing that sometimes people don't recognize is people pleasing and codependency. That was one I was just thinking. Uh-huh. People, people pleasing <laughs> and what was the second one? Uh, codependency. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking to a client recently about codependent relationships and she said something like, uh, you know, well, you know, I'm just a people pleaser. That's just who I am. And I said, no, that's a trauma response. You are not, that's not who you are. This is a response that you took on a behavioral way that you've learned how to manage a situation that felt unsafe, where you decided probably subconsciously, or maybe consciously at the time that you had to behave a certain way and manage somebody else's emotions so that you stayed safe. And this is where I love, I think you took a course with Resma Menachem, right? I did. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember that quote that he has, which goes, uh, trauma decontextualized in an individual looks like personality. Yes. Trauma decontextualized in a family looks like family traits and trauma decontextualized in a community looks like culture. So when we don't understand the context of what we're looking at, meaning that this is happening in a context of trauma, we can mistake these qualities as like inherent to an individual or family or a community. Even like if we look at our culture here or our community in the West and you know, why are people so focused on themselves? Why are people like workaholics, right? All these different things that we might recognize and think, oh, well, that's just the culture of the West. Okay. But it's also a response to capitalism, to patriarchy and to white supremacy. I think it's really important for us to understand the different levels of trauma. That's another thing. We have individual trauma, which is what happens to this body in this lifetime. We have collective trauma, which can be trauma that we experience as part of a, a group that we identify with, like I'm Ukrainian, so but I don't live in Ukraine. So it's very different. But you know, Ukrainians are going through a collective experience. But then whatever culture you live in, right in the United States, and certainly different types of people are going to experience different levels of that trauma, we are all harmed by white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism. And then we have ancestral trauma, which is a you know, another thing. And they all kind of intersect. Of course. Yeah. I was speaking on my group call yesterday about answering someone's question regarding their judgment of themselves for struggling so much. And I really emphasize this isn't because there's something wrong with you. And it's not because there's something wrong with your parents. This is a byproduct of a society where we have been experiencing more and more separation, which points to that broken connection you're speaking of, and more and more beings who've been basically brainwashed into believing I should be strong, it's weak to have emotions, right? We've been conditioned to suck it up and just be successful, and we've lost a lot of the emotional attunement and the skills of co-regulation that so many of our ancestors had when they lived in community and when they supported each other more closely and emotionally. And we're so much more isolated now and we've lost so much of that skill that we are now byproducts of a culture that has really started to infiltrate just in general how we all handle our emotions. And if we were better equipped with emotional resiliency and understanding how to attune and how to co-regulate, 
we wouldn't all be sitting here talking about trauma nearly half as much because it wouldn't have developed the way it has. <laughs> it's so true. It just occurs to me as you share that and you just articulated that beautifully. It's like a mass emotional trauma. Yes. For, for generations. And then, I mean, we have all, I think in the last three years, it's just been heightened. You know, we, you talked about isolation. And then I think that the quarantine just really um, doubled down on that, you know, and everybody I know, including myself for sure, uh, was really impacted by that and experienced that as a trauma. Yeah, when we're talking about this sense of safety, COVID, yeah, it wasn't even safe to go outside. Yeah, it activated the most intense fear response, like mm -hmm. a primal, like survival threat to life, threat to my family, threat to our livelihood like this deep, deep primal, like fear response that, that came online for so many of us across the collective, across the globe. Like this was mm -hmm. global trauma really mm -hmm. in, in so many ways. And so, you know, it's, oh gosh, when we really start to look at all the ways that trauma can occur, you know, it can be overwhelming <laughs> to listen and sit here and realize, wow, I'm impacted by so much that I maybe didn't even realize. And I know that overwhelm can leave, leave people feeling sometimes stuck, paralyzed, yeah. shocked. Sure. What do I do about this? Aha, ah, as I'm starting to like, as you're speaking Katya and I'm feeling my body respond and I'm recognizing some of these things are pinging is true for me, right? There can be this like urgency around, well, what do I do to fix this? Well, let's all just take a nice deep belly breath yeah. here. <laughs> For that's real. what you do you stop and breathe number one yeah, use stop your breath. And breathe but for real like this is a, a heavy conversation and it might be it might feel that way for somebody who's just it's just clicking for them right now so like noticing even I was just noticing as I was listening to you there was a tightness in my my belly and I wasn't breathing fully and I I took a nice deep breath and there's a little bit more spaciousness. So is taking deep breaths going to heal all your trauma? Like probably not, but this is a start, right? This starts to bring our nervous system back into regulation. Right. It's a practice. It's a process that supports us in maintaining that regulation state or sort of a baseline of more peace, more calm and not dipping into the the extremes of overactivation or underactivation. It's an anchor, right? It can bring yeah. you back to your body, back to this moment. And we're going to get, you know, sometimes it feels like we're getting tossed around, but maybe we're just gently moving sometimes with the waves of life. And if we can connect to anchors, that's what's really important because life is going to bring ups and downs. And like we do live in a pretty intense time. Maybe all times have been intense, but one thing that's important to recognize is that right now we are receiving the amount of information that we receive and like even just a daily basis is more than our ancestors perhaps received in an entire lifetime. So if we think about too much and too fast, just processing information, which is what our nervous system does, it's it makes sense that we might feel more overwhelmed these days because 
there's a lot coming at us. Yeah, there's and an so information overload. And most yeah. of the information we see, especially through the news, tends to lean towards more negative, more upsetting, more traumatic yeah. types of sensationalized, sensationalized. Is that the word? I think so. <laughs> Blown up to make a big deal about these things right in our face. Yeah. And they are a big deal. And we also were not designed to track the threats around the entire globe. Like our culture has evolved at a much faster rate than our biology has because mm, biology yes. takes thousands, tens of thousands of years to evolve. So we're still using our internal technology from, you know, a long time ago when we didn't have all this other technology going on. So yeah, I'm learning to navigate the digital terrain. Exactly. And we're all sort of figuring it out together. Yeah. Thank God we're together, right? Because we need each other for this healing. For sure. We can't heal in isolation, especially when it comes to things like attachment trauma, relational trauma. The trauma happened in relationship. The healing is also going to happen in relationship. And that's why it's important to have healing communities. Again, that's, you know, one of the positives of connecting on social media, but there's a lack of depth there. And that's not necessarily the safest place to be processing things. And this is why I really believe that working one-on-one or in a group program, you know, but having that intimate support live support is essential for healing trauma. Like we're, you can't do it in a 30 day course, you know, that's pre-recorded or through reading a book. No, it's a start. Yes. It's a start, but the, we need that interpersonal intimacy, that rewiring of safe intimacy of being witnessed and not turned away from when you're having a big emotional experience. I totally agree. Like we all need to have someone or someones who can say, or just be there and say like, I'm here with you and I'm not going anywhere and you're safe and everything you're experiencing right now is welcome and it's not too much and I'm here with you and it's okay. Mm. And like to receive those things, yeah, you can feel it. And I, mean, I feel good like, right now. Yeah. Just hearing oh, me say you. that. Yes. You. Like, uh-huh. Yes, I need that. But yeah. so many of us have had the experience of isolation or becoming hyper-independent. And that's one of the sort of patterns I see when we're looking at attachment traumas. And I want to speak to that to just clarify for anyone who maybe doesn't fully know what we mean when we're saying attachment right the the sort of gold standard is secure attachment where we feel really safe with our parents where they meet our needs including emotional needs and they're met consistently and with this warmth and this attunement so that the nervous system and the child really feels safe taken care of i can depend on other beings right there's this sense of i can trust and depend on humans but i don't need them so there's this healthy connection but also independence that takes place And if we experience an inconsistency in getting our needs met, which doesn't mean it was intentional, also doesn't mean you didn't have loving or caring parents, Mm -hmm. but how they chose to love and care for you may not have fully hit the mark with what you were needing in that moment, 
there might have been a miss. You know, it's sort of like the five love languages. Like, I want you to give me words of affirmation. That's how I feel love. And you show love with acts of service. And so I often don't feel loved, even though you're trying so hard to show love through all the acts of service you do. Right. And so your parents maybe did everything. We fed you and took care of your diaper and took you to Disney World and like, did all of these acts of love, but what you were missing were the words of affirmation, then it may feel at times like I'm not loved or to your point, I need to like really please my parents in order to finally receive the verbal affirmation. Oh, I get those words of affirmation when I get an A on a test or when I perform really well. So now I'm gonna strive to be perfect or please them. Or if I look a certain way. Yeah, exactly. And so we develop these tendencies which can point to at times having attachment wounds or misses that cause us to become at times overly anxious and attached other times really avoidant and distant and we don't trust people and what i see usually as the underlying theme in both is that there were just misses in getting your needs met Mm -hmm. and for a lot of the women i work with i think you said this earlier like they disconnect from their needs And then what we do is we take care of everyone else's needs Mm -hmm. because if I can take care of everyone else's needs and they're okay, then I will almost as a byproduct get my needs met or be okay. Mm -hmm. And that works for a while or we wouldn't do it, right? But I'm sure you have this experience. Most of my client, I guess probably all of them come to me when that system is no longer sustainable or that, that process of getting those needs met has now created more destruction yes it reaches a point where it's no longer helpful it's harmful yeah because the body can only sustain so much it's like the needle that you know um break the needle that breaks the camel the straw that breaks the camel straw (laughs) straw needle needle in the haystack something like that yeah people will come in and they're like well everything was going great and I had total control over my life I was so positive you know, and now all of a sudden I'm, you know, feeling this deep sadness. I'm really insecure. And I, it's, that was always there. You were just doing all of these things to avoid those feelings because it was too much to bear. And that's, there's, it's not anybody's fault. You know, it's just something that happened, but in order to reconnect to life, we have to find another way. Um, And yeah, attachment. I'm reminded of how Gabor Mate talks about attachment versus authenticity. Are you familiar with that framework? No, tell us. Love it. So uh, attachment and authenticity are two fundamental needs for a human, for a child. When a child has to make a choice between these two, and let me define, authenticity is just like our truth that are authentic feelings in any given moment, whether that's joy, whether that's anger, whether that's sadness, our likes and our dislikes, our creativity, just like who we be, right? Our authenticity. And when there's a choice that has to be made between staying close to an attachment figure and, you know, connected to our authenticity, the child will always choose attachment because that's the more fundamental biological imperative. So what happens to that authenticity? And again, authenticity includes your needs. You're just your authentic needs. Well, that has to be shut down to protect that attachment. And it's like, I I like using this metaphor of 
like a little kid, let's say, you know, we're having this conversation and a little kid comes and like tugs on my shirt right now. And I say, no, I'm like having a conversation with Sarah, go away. What do we think that the child is going to do? Is that child really going to go away? I mean, maybe eventually if I do that a hundred times, but no, the instinct of the child is to start screaming, like, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. So I find that when a, a woman or a man, but when a, a person gets into, I don't know, their twenties, their thirties, their forties, it's different for everybody. That child within is just screaming and there's no choice to ignore it anymore. And that's when we have to turn towards that pain and really tend to it in the way that we always deserved to have that we didn't for, for whatever reasons, but that we still deserve and that we need, that need has to be met. Absolutely. And to your point, really the best remedy and repair is getting that need met in new relationships, safe, secure relationships so that you can experience what I call the corrective experience. I'm getting my need met in a way it wasn't met at different developmental stages of my life. And as you learn how to receive from others or feel that sense of safety with others, then you can also learn how to meet the need for yourself, right? Which we sort of call reparenting. Like, okay, my parents couldn't give me everything I needed, but now I've learned how to connect with my own inner child and shine love or care or compassion on her when she's scared or she's needy or she's feeling alone. And we start to build the skill set and the capacity to then regulate self to self as well as self to other. Yeah, because the relationship to the self is what's it mirrors the relationship to the caregiver. So like you said, ideally, when we're a child, we have that positive reflection, and we can internalize the sense of safety within so that we don't like need to grasp from others so that we can, uh, yeah, we all need other humans. It's part of our wiring, but that, that gets internalized. And as an adult, if we haven't had that, then part of our process is to create that relationship with ourselves because so often unconsciously we're abandoning ourselves. We are punishing ourselves. We are even abusing ourselves. And so often to heal our attachment issues, it's also about healing our attachment within ourselves, within the different parts of ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just thinking of when I was struggling with my bulimia for five years, I did not seek any support or help. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell anybody. It was like my dirty little secret. I had so much shame about it Mm -hmm. that the idea of saying, Hey, I'm struggling and I need help. Like I could not bring myself to do it. And I continued to stay stuck in the suffering and pain. And to your point, like ignoring it or not doing anything about it does not, it doesn't go away with time. Just because these things happened in the past, they don't just get better with time. Like we do have to actively work on it. And it wasn't until I finally had the courage to seek support from another human being with a nervous system and a heart that could offer me empathy and compassion that I was denying myself because I had so much self-judgment, so much self-hatred that I was struggling and couldn't get better, right? I was so stuck in those those loops, the shame spirals that I wasn't ever going to be able to pull myself out of that alone. And it pains me when I see so many people who are choosing to stay isolated and try and figure it out on their own 
or just don't even realize that there are people who can support them and actually help them, you know, kind of get out of the darkness. If you're struggling with food and eating issues and you want insight as to why, then I highly recommend you download and take the Empowered Eating Blueprint quiz that I've created to help you identify which of the five bodies of health, that's physical, mental, emotional, energetic, and soul bodies, may be at play for you and that you would benefit from addressing on your healing journey. The first step to change is self-awareness and this quiz is designed to give you that. Click the link in the show notes to access the quiz now. What was the turning point for you? Like you said, for five years, you were just so isolated and then you made a choice to get that support. What, what happened? I reached a point of like my initial sort of turning point in my recovery journey was begging God to help heal me and sort of promising or vowing that I would commit my life to helping other people struggling. So I had this motivation of like, I have to get better because I have to be able to look people in the eye and tell them I can help them. And at the time I had gone through my training as a therapist and I was working at an eating disorder center, but I was still struggling. And I felt like such a hypocrite. I'm like, how can I sit here and try and help people when I cannot even help myself? Like, this is not an integrity. Like, I can't keep doing this. I like have to find a way to get better. And I'm desperate. And I know that there are, like, I reached the point of I'm willing to try anything with anyone. I will do breath work. I will do tapping. I will go into the jungles and like do a crazy dance. Like, whatever you say, <laughs> I'm going to try it until I get better. And then I'm going to take what I learned and help others. So that was really kind of the the moment and that caused me to leave the job. And I mm. spent sort of three months in this deep healing container for myself where I wasn't working because I was like, I'm not going back to work until I am 100% better and can truly, truly say with integrity, I'm healed and recovered and I can help you. Mm. I can relate to that being a therapist and healer and having a struggle with addiction that and, and I think this is common for so many healers and also for so many women and trauma, trauma survivors, which is that desire to help others, which is so pure. Like there is a, a, a light in that that is so pure. And the shadow that comes from trauma is what we've already talked about that like people pleasing or the rescuing. If I can save you, then like I might be okay. But eventually it becomes unsustainable. And we realize that the best way to be there for others is to first be there for ourselves. And we all have heard mm, yes. that. Preach. Preach. Put the oxygen mask on exactly. you first. We've all heard that. But it's, it's one thing to understand something in the mind. And it's another thing to know it in the body and in the heart. And I think we all have to go on that journey of experiencing these things, right? So like right now, listening, you're getting a lot of information, your listeners are getting a lot of information, and there might be some aha moments, and some things are clicking in. And, and then they need to drop down from the mind into the body. And that's when the transformation really happens. Yes, because we talked about it's not a cognitive process. Mm -hmm. 
And I remind a lot of people that we often don't even have these explicit memories of the events. It's stored implicitly in the body, right? And so that's why being able to, like you kind of directed us to drop into the body and, oh, I'm feeling constriction right now, or I'm noticing an increase in heart rate, like what's happening somatically and our sort of sensory experience is really giving us the information of of what's going on even if we don't actually understand with our minds or have a memory to make sense of it mm-hmm. yeah so i'm body... curious because oh, you mentioned um <laughs> you mentioned I'm so excited to talk I know, there's so much to talk about and i'm seeing the time and i'm like oh my gosh we could oh talk God. for hours we could we do so you mentioned as we're talking about breath and getting in the body, like that it's important to have some anchors. Mm -hmm. So are there other ways that you would recommend people would be able to begin to anchor themselves in moments where they're feeling activated or triggered or dysregulated? Do you find breath is the best one? Mm. Breath is really helpful because it's an unconscious process, but we can also have conscious control over it. But I find sometimes you can get into a trigger where it's even hard to connect with that. My favorite go-tos are ice and heat. Mm. It sounds super simple. And also sometimes people think it sounds weird, but I encourage people to try it. Um, When you are in a highly activated sympathetic arousal state, ice is going to help to cool you down, right? So I have ice packs that I use specifically for this purpose. They're malleable. So I can like wrap it around my neck. I'll put it on my chest. You know, these are points where we can uh, access the vagus nerve. If you're super dysregulated, like I would, I used to get into, I don't like using the word hysterical because of the historical um, context of that, but I would get like hysterical and not be able to stop crying and just like my mind would be looping like crazy so a guaranteed you know way to get out of that is to get a bowl of ice water and dunk your face into it and you and you know hold your breath dunk your face into it you're nodding your head so you know this technique I forget what they call it but um yeah I can just, think of the technical term either but I remember in my DBT trainings mm-hmm. dialectical behavioral therapy that yes. is one of the sort of distress tolerance techniques that we learn exactly so just that's where I learned the it. face mm-hmm. yeah and that bowl of ice mm-hmm. and I mean I don't know how true this is but I remember them saying maybe my teacher at the time like this is what happened to passengers on the Titanic like mm-hmm. one reason why in the ice water they were actually calm and not in this hysteria mm-hmm. is because this process was activated from the cold water that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah so that yeah. just popped in my mind. There you go, a little historical uh, tidbit. The ice, I use that so often. Um, and yeah. how long would you hold, like, is this, I just hold it for one minute or two minutes, or is this something like you have to rest with for 30 minutes longer? Like with the ice on your body? Yeah. Um, I mean, what I like about this, the there's different kinds of ice packs that are malleable that I can just put it on the back of my neck and like, do other things, um, which might be, you know, going for a walk or something, because that can also really help like getting out of the environment that you're in. If you're having a big experience, like, 
uh, in your living room, for instance, like grab some ice, go to a different, go outside if you can, or at least go to a different room, change, change location, move the body. Um, but the ice, yeah, I would hold it on for like 15 minutes. I just did a session with somebody yesterday and like he shifted within like two minutes with the ice. So you guys can play with it and sort of just see what works for you based on what's happening in your system and how you're That's what I recommend. Like try it out because every body is different. Um, So play around with ice, play around with heat. Which one do you prefer for which situation? When I'm heat, you would use similarly, like get a a pack you can heat up in the microwave and just use that as a sort of way to calm down or relax. You can use it to calm down. Um, I also find it helpful when you're in a frozen state, like if you're feeling really numb um, or often when I'm feeling grief, I would love, I love to have some um, heat on my heart. You know, that always feels really comforting. So again, really playing around, seeing what works for you, what you're noticing before you use one of these, what you notice after, and you can create your own kind of toolkit for managing your stressors. I love that idea. What do you think of going outside and grounding on the earth? Can that be? Oh, for sure. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about co-regulation. You get to co-regulate. With Mother Earth, that's like the mother of all mothers. (laughs) Yeah. Or a tree or develop a relationship with a tree, right? A tree has its own auric field Mm, that you can connect with. Yeah. I mean, I know we all used to make fun of tree huggers, but now I'm, oh, like I'm actually totally a, tree a tree hugger. hugger. So yeah. I like, lo- I like, I love oh, just trees are the best. Any, any living Absolutely. Being, really. Yeah. Even just noticing like the air on your skin or letting the sun hit your face right? and feeling your feet, hopefully on the bare earth, if possible, nature is such a wonderful tool for calming down the system. Yes. And so we've given people some anchors that they could use in a moment where they're noticing they're starting to feel activated, maybe anxious or overwhelmed. You are trained in a variety of more advanced practices Mm -hmm. and processes that support people in being able to really do some of the trauma healing work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have my methods, so I love to use tapping, but can you speak a little bit about some of the modalities that you use um, with your clients and that you have found to be really effective at doing some profound healing work? Yeah. Well, my healing journey changed when I discovered trauma-focused hypnotherapy, which also has, you know, a real somatic and energetic component to it. And I continue to use that with my clients because I find that it can really target the root of the issue, like we said, trauma doesn't exist in the conscious mind, it's in the subconscious, it's in the body. So part of the process of that is to first connect to resources and hypnosis is particularly useful for that because it's a relaxation process. There's a lot of misconceptions about hypnosis, like you you know, you go somewhere else or you forget where you're, where you are, somebody can control you. Essentially hypnosis is just meditation with a goal. So we're using a particular process to create relaxation in the body, which creates that safety to then connect to more resources, like connecting to your, your true self, 
right? I call it the true self or the wise self. Some people call it the higher self, right? Connecting to your spiritual connection. In hypnosis, not only are we connecting to the subconscious, we're also connecting to the superconscious, which means that we have access to more than our limited conscious mind could, could process. So spirituality becomes comes alive in this space. And then when you have those those resources and can create that internal sense of safety, then we'll start to process some of the trauma. And I actually recently did a session with somebody about food. They were told that by their partner and children that they were emotionally disconnected. And they agreed with that. Um, but in particular, they came in because they had a habit of emotionally eating and they wanted to figure out what, what was going on with that. So we started with, you know, the, the hypnosis, the relaxation, we connected to those inner resources. And then I asked this person to just go back to the most recent time that they felt that urge to eat something when they weren't really hungry. And they said, well, right before I got on the Zoom call, I went to, to grab some nuts and I realized I wasn't even hungry. And so I had them connect with, and this is easier to connect with when you're really relaxed to connect with those emotions. And they identified that they were actually feeling insecure and overwhelmed and that they needed protection. And I said, well, let's give that a voice. And they, the, what came through this feeling of fear was saying, help, help me, right? I, I'm alone and afraid. And you know, this is a person who has a very high level position in a very intense profession that requires holding it all together and being the strong one. I don't think they would have ever said that if they weren't in this hypnotic, you know, relaxed place. So we go back to the first time that they felt this way. And it was when their beloved pet died. This was their only connection. So we went back, they were age five. And their dog, who was, like I said, their only sense of connection because their parents were unavailable and I think even a little abusive. And they're holding their dog in their arms, who's dying. And their mom is right there and not saying anything, not caring at all. And the decision, or rather the conclusion that this person made at five years old in this moment was that I'm not worthy of love. And when I offer love, it's rejected. Maybe it was because the dog died and definitely the mom wasn't really present. And so they made a decision then that I'm not going to hug and I'm not going to show love because when I do, I get rejected. And I said, okay, and how does this relate to food? And this was where like, I could never have predicted this. I was actually shocked. In fact, I have the notes in front of me. I want to read them. They said, if I can't get love, I can still get food and I can still love food because I don't have to give love back to food. I'm yes. safe. Yes. Oh my God. Mind blown. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm having full body chills because this, this attachment to food as love without an agenda, without conditions is so mm -hmm. common. It's so mm -hmm. common. And you just described it so perfectly with this client's experience. Right. There's that like 
I mean, the theory of emotional eating is you have a sensitive child who had invalidating experiences, right? So his level of sensitivity, losing the dog and this lack of validation or emotional support from mom is like, that is exactly how it looks. And then if mom isn't giving me the love I need, I need to find another source. And children have easy access to food. So that usually becomes one of the default ways that we try to feel better or we feel a moment of euphoria or pleasure. And we think that's what love is, or that's what comfort is. And we become attached to that because it feels safer than it does to try and seek this from another human being who could reject me, hurt me, make fun of me, criticize me, you know, the laundry list of pains that we've experienced in relationship. And what's going on in a child, you know, before the age of seven, the brain is in a theta brainwave state for the majority of the time. And that's the same brain state that we're in in hypnosis. So everything that's being decided and concluded, like these different beliefs, I'm not worthy of love. Food is the only safe way to receive nourishment or love. Um, that gets templated in the subconscious that then is going to be operating even when we're not consciously aware of it as an adult. And what's really cool about hypnosis is that it can take us into the brain state and even the ego state of like the five-year-old. So we're right there where this was rewritten, where this was written, and then we can rewrite it. So the healing is then bringing the true self, the wise self, the spiritual connection to that little child who was all alone in that situation. And now it's a corrective experience because they're receiving love. And then we can rewrite those beliefs. Yeah, we can't go back and change the what happened we can't change the actual experience but we can repair how the brain and body is responding Mm -hmm. to that experience or how it's activated in the present as a result of those sorts of experiences and that sounds like a lot of what you're doing with hypnosis is really a connecting someone to a state of resource so they have that baseline of what that feels And I can see how important that would be if someone like you and your experience has never even had an experience of Mm -hmm. a resource nervous system or what regulation or stability feels like, like you need, you need to have that first, a taste of that to be able to then go in and repair some of the ruptures from the past. And then you're able to help people regress to some of these really key moments in their upbringing when these really formative beliefs or emotional wounds were created and support them in that, that corrective experience, which is so beautiful and powerful. That's a lot like what I do. I use tapping right? emotional freedom technique. And Mm -hmm. so different processes, but very similar in the overarching process, which is that, you know, with tapping and I'm helping to create a sense of safety in the nervous Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And then we also regress to try and uncover Yeah. What were the key moments where you first used food to self-soothe, where someone first made a comment about your body, where you were shamed for what you were eating, where mom brought you to the doctors and they put you on a diet. It's like we start to reveal this world of experiences that has really shaped somebody's attachment to food and their eating patterns and behaviors. Yeah. You know, EMDR is very popular as a trauma uh, modality and 
what you're describing, what I'm describing is doing this the same process. We're just going in in a different way. You're going into that trance place using tapping. I'm going in using hypnosis and it's, we're still, we're all processing and creating a new relationship with new meaning and anchoring in new beliefs, right? New ways of orienting to the world, to food in, in uh, the case of your clients. What's cool about tapping and about hypnosis is that these are things that our clients can then do for themselves. I don't, I don't do EMDR, so I don't really know, but um, I'm not sure if it's translatable outside of the office, but tapping anybody can do. I love tapping and hypnosis, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. So like our clients will learn these things in session and be able to do that for themselves, you know, and it's a terrible business model, but my job is to get fired, (laughs) essentially not fired in a bad way, but like my job is to not be needed anymore, you know, that's what we're here to do. With the skill set and the the ability to support yourself. Exactly. And if you choose to continue to have support from a professional like you or me, you can make that choice, but it's not a dependency. I don't need you. And I think that's important. You know, we're saying, yes, the healing happens in relationship. And that doesn't mean you can't learn how to over time, like really support and heal yourself. Although I find it just becomes more fun and enjoyable to continue to do the work with others. Oh yeah. Well, it's different too. The on my own is more like for me personally, that helps me with my maintenance, but there are certain things I just can't get to on my own. And I've been doing this work a long time, like, and you too. And I don't know if this is your experience, but I know both of us have a lot of education, a lot of experience. And I know for me, I can't hold that healing space for myself in the way that I need it sometimes, right? Because I have my own ego and I have my own conscious mind and I have my own trauma that I, I like deeply want held by another person. So it's not an either or, it's a both. And I think, like you said, it's not a dependency. It's more of a, I deserve this support. I deserve to have somebody who cares so deeply about my healing that they're going to sit with me and teach me things and help me move through things and also empower me to, um, in between sessions, do healing for myself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just to kind of summarize what, what we've both shared, you know, there's really multiple paths to healing trauma. There's multiple approaches and modalities. You know, you specialize in hypnotherapy. I specialize in emotional freedom technique. There's EMDR and there's many more. And so there isn't a right way to go about this, right? For the person listening right now who's feeling inspired to begin to seek support, I want to encourage you to sort of feel into, like you said, how it feels in their body. Do a little research, maybe connect with different practitioners for some, you know, consultations and really notice how you feel with that person. If you feel safe, if you feel seen, if you feel understood and then explore some processes until you sort of find the one that really is working for you. Um, I know that was for me, you know, I experimented with a variety of healing modalities and what really worked for me was tapping. And so that's the practice and process I use, but I also understand that may not be for everyone, mm-hmm. you know, not everyone, it, it just doesn't fully jive with them. 
and that's okay, but you're not going to know until you try. So you get to keep an open mind, empower yourself to know this is my body. This is my experience. And I do get to decide what path I take and who I choose to work with and what modalities I use. And I'm also open to being surprised or not ruling out or judging something before I try it. That in itself is already a start to trauma healing, you know, honoring your needs, your desires, honoring your intuition. This is the person I really want to work with. You know, this person, maybe it's just not a fit. Um, And having this commitment to openness, like I'm going to show up, even if I am unsure or scared, I'm going to trust my intuition that, you know, I chose this practitioner, I chose this modality for a reason. And that's already starting to heal the trauma before the first session. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it can, you know, there's some trial and error because for many of us, we are disconnected from our intuition. And so you really are figuring it out as you go. And I'm curious, this is sort of the last question emerging for me because so many people ask this, well, how long is it going to take? How long (laughs) is it going to take once I start doing this work to hear my trauma, Katya? Give me the number, right? In a month, I shall be cured. I wish, I wish I had the answer to that million dollar question. I want to say my love, you don't have to rush your healing. Yes. Give yourself the grace of time and space that you are not broken and there's nothing to be fixed. And so there is no rush. Rushing is violence to a sensitive system. Yeah. And there's no, there's no timeline of getting there. You don't get there. No, there's no point where you're you like, don't. I am here because yeah. what you discover, at least this is for me. And I, you let me know if this feels true for you too, but it's like the more I've walked on the healing path, it's like the deeper and deeper it's gotten. It's like the more the depths have been revealed because I've said yes, because I'm saying like, I want to heal. And then it's almost like the universe is like, okay, we're going to just show you everything. Here's the Mm -hmm. next thing. Here's the next thing. Oh, you didn't know about this ancestral stuff. Well, here it is. (laughs) Oh, you think you were better, but we're going to bring it up again, right? Here's the next test, the next trigger. And so it's an unfolding journey and path. It's not a a one and done. Yeah. It, It gets to become just part of how you live, which is exactly learning how to take care of you when you need it. Healing. I've come to understand, and I used to be like that desperate, desperate for my healing. I needed to happen now should have happened already. And I've come to understand that it isn't a particular thing. It's the relationship that I have with myself. I'm not going to abandon myself when things go wrong, I'm going to continue to honor my dignity and my worth. And even when I really want to go into that self-hate place, I'm going to know that I deserve something else. Even if I don't know how to get it at that moment, because I'm in it in one of those valleys, you know, our healing is never lost. So every layer that we go, you know, we're building on something. So even when we get into those places, those valleys, it's like, oh my God, I thought I already healed this. You did. And there's more and it's all okay. Yeah. One of my favorite, favorite things that you ever said in one of your classes, which I 
quote and repeat. And I don't think it's, they're your words. So if you know who said it, you can let us know. But it was that healing is not about feeling better. It's about getting better at feeling. And that for me, like shifted everything because I felt like for myself and so many people who would come to work with me, it's like when they show up to do the healing work, they think the end result is, and I will leave feeling a hundred percent better. I'm just happy and I feel amazing and confident and I don't feel the icky emotions anymore. And I don't feel bad and down. And that's not an accurate expectation or definition or understanding of what healing is. That's not true. So can you speak a little bit about this idea of like healing is getting better at feeling? Because when I understood that for me, it shifted everything. Mm-hmm. I think that was Michael Brown who said that. I think that a, that gives us a lot of grace so that when we are feeling other things than happy, we can recognize that this is also part of the healing. B, our emotions are connected to our aliveness. And when you know we've had trauma, we will disconnect from that. We'll disconnect from those feelings through whatever way that we do, disassociating, eating, addictions, whatever. So we don't have to feel this. And so we disconnect from our aliveness. So there's power in those emotions. And so that is part of the healing. And I recently heard somebody say, this was on TikTok. Um, I'm exploring the wild worlds of TikTok. Uh, as a elder millennial, it's an interesting <laughs> experience. Yeah, I have not made that venture yet. <laughs> I'll give you some tips when you get there. But um, so I don't remember the person who said this, but it was beautiful. She said, um, Healing is not becoming some idealized version of self. Healing is about learning to love the parts of yourself that you feel shame about. Mm. And that is such a perfect description. Right. It's not, I have to change myself to be better or to be perfect in order to feel good or love myself. It's learning to just fully embrace and accept like all parts of you, including the hurt Mm. parts and the maybe like, the parts that we judge or don't love mm-hmm. and we honor them and we accept them and we offer like, those are the parts that usually are the ones needing more love and compassion anyway. Yeah. So we learn to like fully embrace them and give them what they're needing, which is that empathy. And, and, and I love some, yeah. Isn't that something that you say in tapping every day in every way, I love and accept myself more and more. There's an acceptance statement is a part of it. It's, Uh yep, I completely hate myself right now for what I did. Uh And I'm learning to love and accept myself. Uh, It's like, yep, I'm thinking this and I'm feeling this and I judge it. And even this I'm learning to accept. And that has to happen before someone can, like the accepting what is, is an integral part of the then being able to release it or shift it. Because if we are judging it or resisting it, it stays stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really just appreciate kind of ending with this, the, this understanding of what healing really is, you know, it's not this enlightened state where we experience no pain, but it's arriving to this place where we can acknowledge the pain and accept the pain and feel the pain and not avoid it and not revert to these really unhealthy 
maladaptive coping mechanisms and we can ask for help when we need it and we can start to identify what we're needing in those moments and like meet those needs and like truly loving nourishing ways because i always tell my clients like food is never going to fill the void you can eat all the beets in the world and you are not going to feel any more loved at the end of the day and so even if that's what our brain feels as a safe source of love like it's never going to feel as good as like really understanding how to give and receive love to yourself or with others. It all comes back to love. It, it really, really does. does. Yeah. I think we could have a, maybe we'll come back and talk another day about <laughs> love because I'm about to go on a tangent about conditioned love and do we even know what love is? And whew, there's so much there to be to, continued. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. We'll come back. Well, thank you, Katya, for this beautiful, thought-provoking conversation and for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. I would love for you to just share with anyone who's curious how they can connect with you or if they resonate with you in your process and wanted to, to inquire about working with you. Like, how can people get in touch? Online is the easiest way. Uh, my website is katyalovejoy.com, K-A-T-Y-A, Love, joy, the two things you want. dot com, <laughs> and then I'll I know I always think you have the best name. <laughs> uh, you can find me at the same name on Instagram and TikTok. If now on TikTok, see, yeah, <laughs> announcing. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for opening this conversation and for your whole podcast. These are really important things to talk about. And I'm honored to be able to come in and share with your listeners. And I just am so grateful for you as a friend, as a fellow practitioner who's just doing amazing things in the world. Thank you for trusting me to be on this beautiful podcast. Absolutely. No, oh, I'm so grateful to have you in this lifetime as a, a friend and sister and fellow, you know, healer walking the path. The of healing sort of path. Yeah, the wounded healer, you know, we're exactly. working on our own healing as we're supporting others. We're all, all together. Yeah, and I also want to make sure for anyone listening, um, for them to know that they can also get some amazing free hypnosis meditations yeah. from you. So if you're curious to experience some of Katya's uh, hypnotic magic, which I will say I've experienced firsthand, and actually the first time I met you was at um, my Reiki Master Retreat, where you facilitated one of the most incredible cacao ceremony yoga nidra meditation experiences that i've ever had so i mean she's good and, and I'm highly, <laughs> i highly recommend that you go get this it's a free meditation right it is and you're reminding me we should have a whole nother episode on yoga nidra but uh yes hypnosis um i would love to share that with your listeners i have a freebie it's to help people a get in touch with this practice what is hypnosis does this feel right for me and then this particular recording is going to help people really anchor and connect to their own boundaries their sense of like being able to protect themselves as they move out into the world so this is really good for highly sensitive folks and those who just feel like yeah, I want to protect my energy boundaries a little bit more. And so this can be one of those resources that we talked about, the things that we're building to help us be more resilient out in the world and in our own healing journey. I love it. I'm going to go download it after this, this call. So <laughs> I hope everyone listening also goes and accesses this. It's just such a beautiful resource that you're providing for this community. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast. 
If you liked today's episode, make sure to follow the show so you don't miss future episodes. And if you loved it, then please share this episode on your social media or send it to loved ones who may benefit from listening too. 